Well, hello, it's Zane Horowitz and the Oregon Poison Center. We are actually sort of pre-recording the March Journal Club now in February, so it'll appear on our website as the March Journal Club as an extra one this month um, since we're all off to a conference. And I'm calling this topic the three T's for pain control, where we'll be covering uh, Toradol, Tramadol, and a newer drug, Topentadol. Um, all of which have some novel uses for pain control, and since there is a big push to find alternatives to straight-up opiates, although a few of these are, in fact, opiates, um, I thought we'd explore how well some of these agents work. So I'm going to start off with, I don't really want to pile on too high with Toradol, which is Ketorolac, because I think most of us are pretty familiar with it. I know when I'm working in the emergency room, I always, like, these patients come in with these horrible, like, renal colic kidney stones, and, like, you know, the resident was over there first, and he gives them, like, this low dose of Toradol, and, you know, by the time I get in the room, like, absolutely nothing has happened. So, I mean, although we know Toradol has some pain control, I was wondering how well it really works for, like, renal pain, and although this is not the perfect article for that, um, it's sort of a good surrogate and at least addresses some novel uh, concepts of how to deliver Toradol. Um, so the name of this article is the double-blind randomized controlled trial of continuous IV Ketorolac versus placebo for adjunctive pain control after renal surgery. And it was actually done at uh, one of the Mayo Clinic sites in Phoenix. And they mentioned, of course, that uh, Ketorolac uh, Tromethamine, which is its official name, is an NSAID, an anti-inflammatory drug. It's not sedating, therefore not addicting doesn't affect bowel function, so maybe a pretty good drug to use in people who are post-surgical. Uh, however, the downsides may be there is some risk of bleeding, um, risk of wound oozing, and risk of renal impairment. And although the safety for bolus administration has been well known for years, they wanted to know what would happen if we just use a continuous infusion to create a steady state of the drug. So they wanted to look at the efficacy and safety of this approach in two groups of patients, Patients going laparoscopic uh, nephrectomy who are donating kidney for transplant and those who are going percutaneous nephrolithotomy or essentially having a stent put in for their renal stone. So both renal, so not exactly what we see in the emergency room as renal colic, but they, so as the title suggests, it was a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial versus placebo. And they had some exclusion criteria. You know, you couldn't be pregnant or have allergies or asthma or long-term opiate use. You couldn't have a lot of blood loss during the procedure. You couldn't have peptic ulcer disease or bleeding, diastasis, couldn't have renal dysfunction with a creatinine greater than two. And you couldn't take probenicid, which would actually prolong the, loose, the, the uh, efficacy or the uh, 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 pain control of the NSAID itself. And then they randomized it in a one-to-one -one ratio, and everybody in the anesthesiologist, the operating room staff, everyone was blinded except the research pharmacist who prepared the solution. And what they did is took 90 milligrams of Ketorolac in a liter of saline, and they infused it at about 40 cc's an hour. So not a whole lot. So you have to take literally 20 hours to get 90 milligrams of Ketorolac. So pretty low dose. And the other solution, of course, was placebo and saline. This was started in the post-anesthesia care unit within 30 minutes of the procedure, and they weren't allowed to get any more Ketorolac after that, but they could have rescue opiates as nurses deemed appropriate for refractory pain. 
course, this is all measured by the ever-present uh, visual analog scale, and they did uh, the primary outcome was differences on that. The secondary outcome was looking at things like urine output, creatinine levels, and hemoglobin levels as a surrogate for bleeding. They did some math. They figured they would need 160 patients. They had a safety committee doing an interim analysis uh, where they would stop the study if they found one group better than the other. And so they were able to recruit 218 patients, so more than they needed for the 160, but by the time they had exclusions and randomizations, they were down to 128 patients. So they lost not that 90 patients uh, in the mix. Uh, 65 were in the Ketorolac group, and 63 were in the placebo group. And when they got to one of these interim analyses for safety, they basically found, and here's the punchline, no difference between placebo and Ketorolac, so they stopped the study. So, I mean, that's sort of basically that it didn't really work. Um, which at least buoys up what I basically just said about treating those horrible renal colic patients with Ketorolac. I always have to go back in there and give them something else. But the study was stopped, and here's some of the results that they did found. Um, basically, they looked at pain analog scores at 0 hours, 4 hours, 8 hours, 12 hours, 16 hours, 20 hours, and 24 hours, and the p-values were not statistically significant except by maybe random chance at 20 hours. Uh, but other than that, all the other time points, they were all um, identical. So placebo versus Ketorolac didn't really do anything. Um, interestingly, though, perhaps there's a few tidbits that can be gleaned from this. Um, there, um, there's no differences between their oral intake of fluids. Uh, interestingly, they there was no Statistical difference between the amount of flatus they passed. They were really doing accurate I's and O's, I guess, down there. Um, there was um, a slight decrease urine output uh, uh, in the Ketorolac group, but the hemoglobin level, the white blood cell counts were identical. There was no bump in creatinine in the Ketorolac group. Remember, they just received essentially one really long dose of this. And... Um, so those are the main findings. It didn't really help much more than uh, placebo. Um, they had to stop the study due to an interim analysis. Didn't really cause bleeding as far as major bleeding or bumps in creatinine. But again, this was like a single dose. It's not how we usually give it for someone who's getting in hospital for maybe two to five days, which is the maximum recommended amount. And so they don't see acute renal failure as a big contraindication to use it, provided you're well hydrated. They, of course, recognize that NSAIDs, and this one specifically can uh, inhibit uh, vasodilatory cyclooxygenase post, uh, prostaglandin production, reducing diameter of the efferent arteriole, and contrib contributing to a decrease in glomerular filtration, therefore perhaps some renal dysfunction that might occur, but if you treat these patients with IV fluids, they seem to do um, just fine. So not the greatest study. They didn't really get to prove that this Ketorolac was much better than placebo, but they suggested that a single dose was not um, any worse as far as renal function. And I know sometimes our surgeons get all upset if we get a dose of pain meds and they have to take some <coughs> of the operating room for appendicitis or something like that. It really shouldn't increase the risk of the single dose of bleeding or bleeding diastasis. So we're not going to linger on uh, Toradol. 
Um, you know, a lot of studies have shown that it probably isn't that much better for a lot of conditions than oral NSAIDs. So the equivalent of much cheaper Motrin is probably equivalent orally. Um, but as a pain reliever, it's got some anti-inflammatory, but it's not really that great for severe pain. So what can we use in its place? We're going to spend a little time on a drug that's been around for a few years now, and it's sort of next-generation cousin. So the first one was, I think this one's more emergency medicine-oriented, at least looking at the pain relief qualities of tramadol with cinnamon versus hydrocodone, a medicine we use with uh, large amounts in the emergency room. Yes. So. Great. Yeah. So, so this article is titled Tramadol Acetaminophen or Hydrocodone Acetaminophen for the Treatment of Ankle, Splain, ankle Sprains, also a randomized placebo-controlled trial. Um, this was published back in April 2007 in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Um, the objective of this study was really to compare the analgesic efficacy and tolerability of Tramadol Acetaminophen versus Hydrocodone Acetaminophen versus placebo. Um, and this was really just for the treatment of acute musculoskeletal pain um, from ankle sprains. So the authors kind of start with the background, as we know that pain is one of the leading reasons for ED visits. Um, more than 50% of visits are um, in the ED are those seeking uh, care and treatment for their pain. Yet it's also very undertreated and kind of difficult to study because it's um, difficult to really establish a, a trial that you can get accurate findings that show that the medication is actually causing a reduction in pain or whether it's the natural healing process or a little bit of both. So um, the main kind of goal of this study uh, was to do the primary efficacy outcome, which was for the every hour for the first four hours after a drug was administered. And then um, using a pain diary, patients were discharged and then would record their pain um, daily for the next five days. So this was a multi-center, randomized, double-blind trial um, that had the three different treatment groups, as we mentioned, the tramadol acetaminophen, hydrocodone acetaminophen, or placebo. Um, and then they were using their, their diaries that they were shown how to use in the emergency room um, or urgent care centers, and then they would follow up daily for the next five days. So study participants were recruited from 47 different urgent care sites, um, 39 of which were emergency rooms. Um, and these patients, participants, were adults ranging in age from 18 to 75. And then uh, their inclusion criteria was that they had to have an ankle sprain um, with a clinical diagnosis of a partial ligament tear within the previous 48 hours. They also had to have pain with ambulation and ankle swelling, and um, it was with or without ecchymosis. So their initial visit um, in the emergency department, they had to have a pain score um, of greater than 50 on the visual analog scale, the 0 to 100, with 100 as extreme pain, and also using a pain intensity scale of 0 to 3, where 3 was severe and 0 is none, they had to have a moderate or severe, so a rating of 2 or 3. And then the exclusion criteria for this study were participants who had used ibuprofen within the previous six hours to presentation, um, any other non-prescription analgesic or topical medication within the prior 12 hours, and then also any use of opioids, muscle relaxants, other NSAIDs within the prior day, the 24 hours, or any use of tramadol acetaminophen or hydrocodone acetaminophen within the prior 30 days. Um, other exclusion criteria was if they had um, any you know, multiple injuries with head trauma, other fractures, or things that would kind of distract from the main musculoskeletal pain that they were trying to treat, which was that ankle sprain. So participants were then randomized in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one fashion, um, and all subjects and study personnel were blinded um, to the treatment allocation. I thought it was interesting on in how they were able to blind kind of the actual medications, since uh, each 
participant was given the option to take um, one or two kind of tablets or capsules, and they were all identical in size, shape, and color. And how they were kind of uh, done was that the initial dose was administered by the investigator, um, where if the patient was in um, the tramadol arm, then they would have two capsules of a 37.5 milligram tramadol with 325 of um, or then if the patients were in the hydrocodone arm, they'd have the one capsule of a 7.5 hydrocodone, 650 acetaminophen, plus a one placebo, or it would be two placebo. So on discharge, um, then patients were then instructed to take one or two capsules up to four times daily as needed for pain up to five days. Um, they were also encouraged to follow the rice mnemonic for rest, ice, compression, and elevation. And then any participant who took any additional pain medication over the next five days um, uh, were then discontinued from the study. So patients over those first four hours after their first dose were then recording um, their pain scale on the visual analog scale, also their pain relief um, number scale, and then when they were discharged, they would then do that again once daily for the next five days. So when really, when looking at this, I mean, the overall size of the study, um, 700 were screened and a little over 600, 603 were randomized um, equally into all three groups. And they had a pretty good compliance um, throughout the duration of this study, uh, where as far as the uh, patients that were discontinued in each one were in a total of around 200, or about 25, 24 to 30. So the study was really powered only to look at the differences between um, efficacy of the tramadol acetaminophen, hydrocodone acetaminophen, or placebo, and kind of looking at all three and compared to that placebo, and it was not meant to look at a difference between tramadol acetaminophen or hydrocodone acetaminophen. I think that was kind of an important um, distinction to make. So the treatment response at four hours was kind of the first thing they looked at. Um, they wanted to see a reduction in pain from the visual analog scale um, with at least a 30% reduction or a 50% reduction, and that was what they kind of deemed as significant on that. So overall, the results um, from this study, you know, I think as, as can be expected that Participants who were in one of the arms that either received the tramadol or the hydrocodone um, with the acetaminophen combo did have more pain relief than those taking just placebo. Um, and then this was especially noted at the first four hours. I know, surprise! Well, the, well, the other study was, you know, it was equal to placebo, so we're, we're moving yeah. up to the scale so, here of things that work. At least for the first four hours. So why didn't they just give them Tylenol or an unset as the placebo? Like, that, to me, looking through this, that was torture on these patients because you didn't treat their ankle sprain. Yeah. Right. But then the interesting thing is when you look at, so for the first four hours, there was, there was a difference. Um, and that was again noted for days one through three. But by the time they came back for that five day follow-up, then there was no real difference in their reported pain relief. So is that really just progression of their injury and healing process or is it all related to medications? So the, the participants who did receive, um, the medications, either the tramadol, acetaminophen or hydrocodone acetaminophen did report kind of better, overall um, just kind of experience with their trial in the course of their pain relief, even though statistically there was no difference in their pain at the end. Um, the other thing they looked at was is kind of tolerability um, between these two groups. And, you know, there's lots of different little graphs that all show that pretty much very little change as far as the efficacy, but then for tolerability um, that the those that were in the uh, placebo group did have fewer kind of adverse effects is what they said. 20% of them had at least one adverse effect compared to 40% in the subjects of either the tramadol or the hydrocodone groups. 
Um, and the main effects that they saw were kind of the nausea, dizziness, and vomiting. Um, but that none of those effects were actually causing patients to kind of remove themselves from the study. So, I mean, that's really, I don't think really a surprising finding. Um, they both show effect early on, and then, you know, five days down the road, that kind of effect is reduced. Um, uh, but the limitations that they kind of talked about were that all of these pain assessments were done while at rest, so there wasn't really any test of while patients were, you know, bearing weight or ambulating. Um, or if they'd had any prior kind of injuries to, to know how they would respond to. Um, so, you know, they have a long discussion kind of over pain in the ED, um, but I think, you know, overall to kind of to the, for this trial and what they, what they had found is that, you know, subjects in the tramadol acetaminophen or the hydrocodone acetaminophen groups were more likely than those in the placebo group to achieve that primary endpoint, which was the 30 to 50% reduction in pain. Um, so they actually did. And like, as we mentioned earlier, better for the first four hours and first three days, but then by day five, um, not real, no real difference. And then um, although this study wasn't really powered to compare one-on-one -on -one the two different groups of the tramadol, acetaminophen versus hydrocodone, acetaminophen, um, they wanted to do more study, but in kind of initially looking at the different results, um, there was no significant difference between those treatment groups um, at the end for their overall pain relief. So, I mean, really, I think the the... The takeaway from this, you know, is that tramadol, you know, is is unique in that it does have kind of that weekly, um, like, immunoreceptor, like opioid um, uh, effect, but it also is, you know, with more the um, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor and some serotonergic activity. Um, so this might be a way to give patients pain relief, um, you know, in kind of a let an unscheduled way. It's a little bit better for us to provide in the emergency room. So um, overall, I think, you know, that it's good, kind of a non-scheduled option, has less abuse potential, um, and, you know, does show a difference and a positive difference compared to placebo. Yeah, I mean, so not a surprise, a drug that has a mu opioid receptor agonism did better than placebo for mild musculoskeletal pain, probably equal, although they didn't say so, to essentially Vicodin. Um, and, um, so it would have been, I think, practice changing if they had compared it to Tylenol or Motrin. Yeah. Like, because then you could say it, whether it was better than those. Right. would be a much better study that would actually give us something. Yeah, I think a, an adequate full-dose NSAID, if it had close or similar efficacy, would say, well, we probably should be using more NSAIDs for this kind of thing. Exactly. And I don't know, the cost of this certainly was, at the time, I'm, I'm sure it's come down a little bit, it was a little bit more expensive than Vicodin was. Um, just to, for a review, trimodal binds to both the mu receptor, the opioid agonist, although much weaker than the other narcotics, and also blocks the reuptake of both serotonin and norepinephrine, so it's kind of like a sneery. And in fact, several of the sneeries that have come out for depression are also sometimes pushed for the pain of depression under the same theory. Unfortunately, the side effect with these is they are serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and therefore they can produce problems that we see with serotonin. So um, the next article addresses a little bit of that in the case series. Okay. Um, I looked at the article title. It's Tramadol Overdose is a Cause of Serotonin Syndrome, a Case Series. And this came out of um, Mashad University of Medical Sciences in Iran. And they did a prospective observational case series, and this was, um, they looked at cases from September 1st, 2006 to August 31st, 2007. Um, and out of an N of 
I guess uh, they found 1.2% of all poisonings involved tramadol overdose. Um, so that had an N of 158. And then of those, 65% were tramadol only, so without a co-ingestion. Um, looking at their um, results, 24 of those, 158, had seizures for 15%. 6% had an increase in creatine kinase. Um, this involved a little bit of reading between the lines. He said eight cases, which is 5%, were treated for potential serotonin syndrome. Um, and so they used just uh, supportive treatment, like external cooling, chlorodize, epoxide, and ciproheptadine um, to do that. One interesting thing, probably the most interesting thing about the article was that they looked at pupil size when they um, came into um, the ER for management. And they found that um, of patients with mydriasis, um, half of those 50% had um, would have a seizure as compared to people with mid-sized pupils, 17% of those would have seizures, and those with meiosis, um, only 3% of those would have seizures. So they kind of think that mydriasis may be a predictor of possible um, seizure, you know, potential seizure activity in patients with a tramadol overdose. Um, they actually, there were kind of like what wasn't significant as well, so um, concurrent intoxication with CNS, other CNS depressants, their age, the dose actually was also not um, associated with increased risk of seizures. And that was kind of the main point. Yeah, so you know, a couple of things. So the lowest dose that they attributed to seizures was in dose range of 300 to 450 milligrams. So it's not particularly much that much higher than therapeutic, which could be 50 to 100 milligrams of. Um, this drug, I thought the and most seizures occurred within six hours um, in all their cases. Although they talked about it occurring later in um, one bizarre patient who had recurrent seizures up to thirty nine hours after exposure. Um, and yeah, they sort of the eye findings. I think were very interesting in that you know if it was really opiate more alike with small pupils, they didn't really seize. Where if it was more the serotonin-like, and they don't really define how they went into serotonin syndrome per se. Um, maybe those were the ones that are more likely to have seizures from serotonin or epinephrine reuptake. They used um, the Radomski's um, yeah. criteria rather than the Hunter criteria for it, which I thought was somewhat interesting. Yeah, and we are not that familiar with you. We use the Hunter area or tox group sometimes, or just sort of our own little, you know, one from each column of autonomic uh, instability, uh, motor activity, and altered mental status. If you have one of each of those three things, we often say, and you took a serotonergic agent, that you probably have serotonin syndrome. So sure, a brief but interesting article suggesting that one, serotonin syndrome is a problem with these drugs and overdose, and seizures can occur, at least in 15% of their cases, and doses sometimes are, that cause seizures are reasonably low, so a narrow to therapeutic to toxic ratio for this new drug. Um, one other drug, I thought this article was going to be much more interesting when I first pulled it, but unfortunately it wasn't all that interesting, but we might as well bring about it because it's in there and someone may bring it up about hypoglycemia in um, overdoses with this poisoning. Yeah, so this is a case report. Uh, it's called Danger of Hypoglycemia Due to Acute Tramadol Poisoning. Um, and there are just a few case reports about this, a few from France and then um, this one. And... Um, Actually, a fairly dramatic presentation with this woman who 
I came to the emergency room two hours after a 3,000 milligram ingestion of tramadol, a slow-release uh, 150 milligram tablets uh, with suicidal intent. Um, interestingly, um, she had had a gastrointestinal stromer tum stromal tumor um, involving her liver and had undergone a partial hepatectomy previously. Um, so in the emergency department, she got activated charcoal, and then 30 minutes after that, she has a one-minute seizure, and her uh, Glasgow coma scale at that time was three. Um, at that time, they checked her blood glucose level, found it to be 52 milligrams per deciliter, um, and she got um, dextrose. Uh, as soon as she got the dextrose, her level of consciousness came up uh, to a 15 on the GCS, and her blood glucose level uh, improved to 68 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, they then started her on, um, uh, they gave her another bolus of 10% dextrose of 500 milliliters, um, which brought her blood sugar up to 306. And then within the next hour, they checked it again and it was back down to 54. So they started a continuous 10% dextrose infusion at 100 mils an hour. Um, and that was what she required to maintain her blood glucose level at 90. Um, despite uh, taking PO food during that period. And then 24 hours later, um, her blood glucose started to come back up again and the dextrose infusion was stopped. Um, so uh, this, this is a known effect from tramadol. There's a few French case reports um, citing hypoglycemia with uh, tramadol, um, but they're very different patients. One was an elderly woman without diabetes. There was an eight-year-old girl with diabetes that developed hypoglycemia. Um, in all the case reports, the hypoglycemia resolves after discontinuing the tramadol. Um, so why, why would tramadol cause or, or contribute to hypoglycemia? Well, the problem with this case report is uh, here she possibly could have had decreased hepatic reserve from her prior hepatectomy um, that could be confounding the association there. Um, but the other case reports, um, the people had intact liver function when they had the hypoglycemia. Um, so could decrease hepatic reserve, decrease gluconeogenesis be contributing here as possible? But uh, the authors of this case report uh, speculate that they don't think it's a direct effect of tramadol on the liver itself that's causing the hypoglycemia. Yeah, so not exactly, you know, smoking gun evidence for hypoglycemia and the, and the drop in sugar was not to dramatic levels, um, you know, with 50 and uh, 68. But, you know, the recurrence of it is a little suggestive. Obviously, the patient was not normal as far as their liver function and liver surgery and their tumors before. So, but I guess something to keep an eye out for with tramadol use is one more thing that might cause hypoglycemia, not just assume that they don't wake up with Narcan, but it's something else. I think it's worth like yeah. all our general approach that anybody's done to check a blood sugar on and fix that when we find those problems. But wouldn't you have expected her liver to have grown? Isn't that sort of why we do three sessions and yeah, I mean, she's supposed to regenerate, and yeah. it was two years ago. Yeah, I mean, she's had a partial hepatectomy, so she shouldn't have terribly abnormal liver function. I mean, you do have the rest of your liver that's there. So, but I don't know. I mean, her sugar wasn't that low, although they said her Glasgow was down to three, so something happened to get it down to three. 
So I think the seizures is probably what happened. I think she had the seizures wow. and that was postictal and they gave her glucose and she woke up and was less postictal okay. and then dropped her blood sugar back down again. Yeah. But sort of the, the roller coaster ride we often see with pushing an amp of D50 on folks and sugars go up and then you respond with insulin output and the sugars go down again. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's a smoking gun, but, um, you know, something to keep in mind with these overdoses. Um, so I figured I'd throw in one more article, also sort of highlighting the risk of seizures. Um, this is Tramadol Exposures Report of the Statewide Poison Center. That's the California Poison Center system um, by Kathy Marcock and Tim Albertson and Judy Alsop out of the Davis uh, group there. And they basically looked at all the California overdoses um, after this drug had been on the market for a while, the drug reached the U.S. market in March 1995. Therapeutic doses is about 25 milligrams a day, up to maybe 100 milligrams every four to six hours. Remember, doses as low as 200 to maybe 300 are in that range, and those are drugs that have been known to cause seizures. Um, they note that after just the first year on the market, uh, the FDA got enough reports to uh, issue a report about 83 cases of seizures, mostly at therapeutic doses with this drug. So, um, and since then, it's had over 200 reports of uh, seizures. So, they looked at the California poison control system from 99 to 2001, about a two and a half year period. They they pulled all their cases. They ended up with about 602 tramadol cases. The tramadol only ones when they threw out all the co-ingestant ones were 190 and that's the study population they looked at. There were uh, most of these 90% were acute overdoses, the others were some therapeutic errors and acute and chronic ingestions. Main symptoms not surprisingly were um, CNS depression, uh, nausea, vomiting, tachycardia and seizures and only one patient really had respiratory depression so at least it seems to be safer than other mu agonist opiates than that. Uh, of the patients that had seizures, there was 26, 16 men, 10 female. The smallest exposure associated with seizures was 200 milligrams, so again, within clearly the daily dose of what these drugs could uh, occur. All the seizures occurred within six hours of ingestion in 85% uh, of the patients, and half of them having their seizures really literally within two hours. So if you want to use a time to observe them, probably six hours makes sense. Um, of the patients that had seizures, 81% of them had one seizure, 3.8 of them had two seizures, and 11 of them had multiple seizures. Um, so you can get more than just one seizure. Most of them are self-terminated. Um, there was one patient, they talked about a couple of that are, are unique and that he had a history of uh, no seizure disorder. He took four tablets of a 50 milligram tramadol, so 200 milligrams for neck pain, and had a seizure two hours later. So, and we've seen similar things as well, so very low dose. Um, they did some logistical regression analysis and found seizures were associated with more likely men, more likely chronic use, more likely suicide attempts, and more likely attentional misuse of the drug and tachycardia greater than 100 beats per minute. So maybe these sympathomimetic effects, the norepinephrine-like effects, are coming through similar to the, the what you say, the dilated pupil effects that we saw as well. Um, there was one patient who took uh, 32, uh, 
3,250 milligrams of trimetol. He was a 38-year-old male, had a seizure at home, and another one in the ambulance, and another one in the ER. And so he was the one who kept having seizures, but he took a gigantic amount, and uh, he actually dropped his blood pressure to 86 over 66. They looked at a subgroup of children. There was 51 children altogether. Some of them, about 13%, got sedated. They really didn't have seizures. So I think potentially these kids could take enough to a milligram per kilogram basis to cause seizures. I think we always are watching these because we're worried about that. But in general, kids seem to do well, as is the case with other pediatric ingestions. So again, this is a highlight on tramadol. This drug may have less potential for tolerance and addiction, less potential for respiratory depression. It's really that wasn't seen in any of these studies. They still have some things that we see with opiates like nausea, vomiting, GI symptoms, and the serotonin syndrome, although not really identified in a lot of these studies, is a potential, especially if other drugs are used, but no one really in any of these case reports or case studies has really proved that. And then they talk about really the culprit here may not be tramadol itself, but it may be this M1 metabolite, which has a longer half-life. So trimadol usually has a quick onset of actions with peak blood levels within two hours. The half-life of the parent compound is about five hours, and this M1 metabolite is about nine hours, and this may be responsible for some of these delayed seizures that occur. Um, so that's pretty it, much it for tramadol. I think the take-home message is it may be safer at the doses that we use. You've got to be careful about using it in patients that are just going to say, if one isn't good, two will be better. If two doesn't work, I'll take four because they're going to get in trouble with uh, more likely, I think, seizures than true serotonin syndrome, but serotonin syndrome, of course, is a possibility. So what if we could take a drug and just kind of tweak its chemistry so we get rid of that serotonin problem and redesign it and come up with something new? So tell us about that drug, Dependidol, is Jen. I feel like we should have like drum rolls leading up to it. Is that, you know, like my intros from yeah. article, article. <laughs> Okay. Right. All right, so the article I'm going to discuss is Tepentadol and pain, pain Management, a new opioid receptor agonist and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor. So this is an article by Drs. Hartrick and Rozek. Um, it was published in CNS Drugs in 2011. And really it's a, it's a review of Tepentadol, um, both in its proposed mechanisms and um, uh, efficacy is really what they focus on. Uh, so as a little bit of background, um, they really focus on the um, additive and synergistic effects of various drugs. So we combine, you know, opioid analgesics with other medications, NSAIDs, acetaminophen, other things, with the idea that you want to achieve additive effects um, of analgesics um, by disrupting pain transmission at various points along the pathway. So the idea is that as long as you don't have adverse effects that are similar between the drugs and then are not overlapping, the patient could theoretically benefit from more efficacy and less side effects. Um, so it talks a little bit about the uh, additive effects um, versus synergistic effects. So the additive effects of two medications are essentially adding the two together, where synergistic effects are, when you add them together, they actually work, work better than just adding them alone. Um, and there's been some studies that have shown um, uh, acetaminophen and other NSAIDs do have some synergy. So we know it do, does work in some, some cases. 
Um, there's a good review of uh, pain receptor interactions. Um, as a reminder, there's multiple opioid receptor types and subtypes. So this is the idea where you can provide synergy by acting on multiple, multiple different receptors. Um, with also with the idea that the receptor types are, are and subtypes are distributed regionally. So some are, high, are have a higher concentration in the spinal cord and others in the brain. Um, so potentially if you can work on these different receptors in different places, you could potentially have more analgesic effect. Um, so in, in regards to pain pathway interactions, um, when pain pathway pathways converge, this is where the, you, it would be expected that you could potentially have synergistic effects. So they give the example of, um, of a pain pathway where calcium is re released um, following substance P from the primary nociceptor, um, which then goes on to work on other various second messengers, neurokinin 1 and some other things, um, and glutamate release, which go on to activate NMDA and non-NMDA glutamate receptors. So this increase in calcium then goes on to mediate the nociceptive effects um, by various other multiple mechanisms, so nitric oxide production, prostaglandin production, um, and uh, Cox interactions. So if you, if you interrupt this process by several different um, mechanisms at once, um, the idea is that you could get a synergistic effect. So they also make the example of um, afferent pain pathways um, being modulated by other pathways, such as descending inhibitory pain pathways. And the example that they talk about is tricyclic uh, uh, antidepressants that we sometimes use for chronic pain. And the, the analgesic effect in these have been attributed to the serotonin-mediated inhibitory pathways, as well as um, norepinephrine-mediated inhibitory pathways. So we just have to keep in mind that you know, there's, we talk a lot about mu receptors, but there are other pathways that play into pain, um, pain detection and sensation. So with all that being said, um, you know, there's our, there are some drugs like morphine that actually, even though it's only one drug, they actually work by two different mechanisms. So morphine um, has an affinity for two different G-protein coupled receptors of the rhodopsin family. So it works both on the opioid receptors as well as the alpha-2 adrenergic receptor. So this is how morphine uh, mediates analgesia. So, and then they also talk a little bit about tramadol, which they just talked about, so I'm not gonna go into that too much. But ideally, I think they're, they're really, their introduction is really something up to pentadol is, um, you know, touting the benefits of having one drug with multiple mechanisms of action to both have potentially more efficacy and less side effects. So, to pentadol. So, the first uh, to pentadol formulation was immediate release. Um, brand name is Nucinta. It uh, was FDA approved in 2008. It has dual mechanism of action. It's a centrally acting analgesic being both a mu opioid agonist and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Um, it's indicated for the treatment of severe to moderate to severe acute pain in patients older than 18 years. Um, as far as its uh, uh, some of its pharmacology, um, it binds to the mu opioid receptor selectively. Um, so it has more than tenfold affinity compared with other uh, opioid receptors, such as uh, uh, Delta and Kappa, um, despite the fact that um, 
it binds to mu opioid receptors 50 times less than morphine, the analgesic potency is only two to three times less than morphine. So the idea is that there, uh, you know, there must be something else, one of their other mechanisms besides just a pure mu effect that is uh, affecting its analgesic properties. So um, they did, they talk a lot about various studies um, trying to figure out which what the contribution from the norepinephrine uptake inhibit inhibition versus the opioid analgesic. Um, and they go into this really in talking about various neuropathic pain states um, with animal models and as well as some um, uh, human models. Um, but the idea is that the in the neuropathic pain, the norepinephrine reuptake inhibition um, is thought to be more of a play more of a role in uh, analgesic effect in, in neuropathic pain. Um, there is also a rodent model that suggests that the primary site of, of action of tepentadol is actually in the spinal cord, um, and that it induces uh, analgesia solely on opioid and norepinephrine uptake, based on this one, uh, this rat study. Um, so then they, they go into a little bit about some of the studies that have been done. Um, actually, they sorry, they, the first let's talk a little bit about the pharmacokinetics. So um, it's rapidly absorbed. The bioavailability is pretty low. It's only 32% because it undergoes pretty extensive first-pass metabolism. Um, Half-life is 4.9 hours. So if you dose every six hours, you should reach a steady state by 30 hours. Um, it's metabolized by various UGT enzymes. It's renally eliminated. Um, mostly as its major metabolite, tepentadol O-glucuronide. Um, it does note that if you have moderate hepatic dysfunction, you need a dose redu reduction, and if you have severe hepatic dysfunction, you probably shouldn't be on it. Um, it doesn't require any metabolism for its activity, and it doesn't have any active metabolites. Um, they compared it, uh, look for potential drug-drug interactions with Acetaminophen, naproxen, aspirin, some other, couple other common drugs, and there haven't been any documented drug-drug uh, interactions in the ones that they listed. Um, it is contraindicated in patients receiving MAOIs, um, even though it, it's known not to really have much, much effect in the way of serotonergic toxicity. So in going into the efficacy trials, um, in order for that, before the, as the FDA approved it, um, there are 33 trials that they had taken uh, information from. A total of 3,500 people or subjects were exposed to at least one dose. First study they talked about was a third molar extraction with bone removal. It was 400 patients, randomized, double-blind, uh, placebo-controlled. Essentially, they gave people various doses of dependental ranging from 21 milligrams to 172 milligrams. Um, and then they compared it with oral morphine ibuprofen, 400 milligrams, so potentially, you know, that's a, it's a fairly low dose of ibuprofen, um, and then placebo with ibuprofen re rescue. Um, essentially, they found that all other doses besides the lowest dose of 21 milligrams of dipentadol um, provided better pain relief scores over the first eight hours compared to placebo. So the author doesn't really talk about in compared to the other drugs. Um, but if you look at the actual uh, article that they cite, um, it just essentially says that the efficacy of tepentadol is in between, um, is, is 
the efficacy of morphine is in between the Dependsodol 100 and 200 dose. Um, but essentially, it doesn't really go into really comparing between the groups. It really just compares the placebo. A um, couple other studies that they did on post-op bunionectomy models. Um, they gave, they randomized people to uh, Dependsodol 50 milligrams, 100 milligrams, oxycodone 10 milligrams, or placebo. And they found that both doses of the Dependsodol was superior to placebo, as expected. Um, and then, and that one also did not compare to um, the oxycodone. They did another study where they compared to Dependsodol 50 milligrams, 75 milligrams, or 100 milligrams, um, as well as oxycodone 15 milligrams, or placebo. Um, there was a dose-dependent response um, in its analgesic effect. So as you went up, you had a better analgesic effect. Um, they found that Dependsodol 100 milligrams was similar to oxycodone 15 milligrams um, for primary pain control. Um, another study, similar situation, um, Dependsodol 50, they did 75, and then oxycodone 10 milligrams for, or placebo. Um, essentially found that the 50 and 75 milligrams of Dependsodol were non-inferior to oxycodone 10 milligrams. And then um, they did a, there was actually a short-term use in chronic pain model. So all the other ones were all, you know, short-term pain. Um, essentially, they had people who had end-stage uh, degenerative joint disease, and they treated them for a 10-day period. And they got either Tepentadol, 50 milligrams, 75 milligrams, oxycodone, 10 milligrams of placebo, and also had um, non-inferiority amongst all three active treatment groups. So, kind of a similar situation, most of them comparing to um, placebo, which, surprise, surprise, they are more efficacious than placebo. But, but similar to somewhere between 10 and 15 on boxycodone. Right. Um, so, the next section is safety and tolerability. Um, they, if, mostly they compare GI effects because, you know, really we're comparing Tepentadol with other opioids and um, GI effects are the most prominent effects. So they looked at nausea and vomiting in various studies. Um, they were, in one study, they were five times less likely with Tepentadol, 50 milligrams, and three times less likely with Tepentadol, 75 milligrams as compared to oxycodone, 10 milligrams. They looked at constipation. Um, was 10 times less likely in Tepentadol 50 milligrams um, compared with oxycodone 10 milligrams. Um, then there was another meta-analysis looking at um, all gastrointestinal adverse effects. Essentially found that they were all statistically significantly lower with Tepentadol compared to oxycodone. And that's pretty much a common theme for the uh, for all of the GI uh, adverse effects. It looks like there is a better uh, adverse effect profile for Tepentadol compared to oxycodone. Um, they looked at CNS effects, somnolence, dizziness, and found that they weren't really significant um, in Tepentadol. Um, I'm sorry, there were no significant differences between the oxycodone and Tepentadol. Um, there was no significant respiratory depression noted in any other study populations. Um, they looked at, although they do make a note that, you know, they still, of course, does have a potential for serious respiratory depression. Looked at pruritus, which was less frequent with Dependsodol compared to oxycodone. Um, 
And then they talk a little bit about there are significantly lower rates of treatment discontinuation with Tepentadol compared to oxycodone. Um, and they noted that the people who did discontinue their medications, it was usually due to nausea or vomiting. Um, and that was significantly lower than Tepentadol, 5.9% compared to oxycodone, 14.7%. Um, they also did a, a study in healthy volunteers looking at QPC prolongation and found essentially that there was no QPC prolongation. And then they go on to the extended release to pentadol. So in this review article, they say that the FDA uh, approval is pending um, as of 2009, but it will, we can note that it was actually approved in 2011 um, under a REMS program. So, um, and they do have a formulation that's designed to interfere with breaking or crushing the pill. So, um, most of the studies for the ER extended release are for chronic low back pain or osteoarthritis pain. Um, they essentially, usually, they check for, they use tepentadol doses of 10 to 250 milligrams versus oxycodone controlled release of 20 to 50 milligrams daily for up to a year. Um, they found that discontinuation due to adverse effects were less frequent with Tepentadol, GI effects were less frequent than Tepentadol, and they had equal pain scores between the same groups. Um, another study, similar thing, where they did a three-week titration period um, followed by a 12-week treatment, um, kind of trying to simulate clinical conditions. The patients were either maintained on Tepentadol, 100 to 250 milligrams twice daily, or oxycodone, um, 20 to 50 milligrams twice daily, or placebo. Um, and they found that there was significant improvement in um, over placebo for Tepentadol. Um, the oxycodone, um, although it had a significant improvement over the overall 12-week course, the, they actually failed to provide significant improvement when they looked at just the last week of the treatment. Um, let's see. So a um, couple more studies that they did comparing, I'm not gonna go into all of them in detail because for the most part, they all find the same thing. Um, they, a lot of them do the 12 week protocol with a three week titration and they pretty much all of them find that Pentadol is either um, is, is not inferior or superior to oxycodone extended release. And um, and again, they also looked at the adverse effects of the extended release formulation of Tepentadol. Um, constipation, nausea, vomiting were all significantly lower with Tepentadol extended release than with oxycodone controlled release. And again, the discontinuation rate was um, was was better with Tepentadol compared to placebo, and also lower than that taking uh, oxycodone controlled release. Um, and then, and then they talk a little bit more about um, using Tepentadol for neuropathic pain. Um, and they, they talk about a, a single phase three trial with patients with um, peripheral uh, neuropathy from diabetes. Um, and essentially, they, the study didn't have an active 
um, comparisons such as oxycodone, um, but there were statistically significant differences compared to placebo with at least 30 to 50% pain management or pain improvement with Depentadol. So. And then they do some studies with convert, converting doses from immediate release to extended release um, and shows that it pretty much you can just convert it straight over. So um, overall, um, you know, in, the, in the, their conclusions, they do note that the drug costs are probably higher because it's a newer drug. And there's really not a lot of data on the safety um, of these medications. So they do recommend, of course, that we need more uh, studies to, to confirm the safety and efficacy. Um, and then you will also make note that in the acknowledgments, you'll note that the authors um, do receive research funding from Ortho, McNeil, and Johnson & Johnson, which, surprise, happens to be the manufacturer of Pentadol. Um, but they do report no potential conflicts of interest. Well, one received research funding, the other yeah. had no evidence. Yeah. So. So it's one one and one. So hopefully one guy was keeping the other guy reasonably like, honest, and yeah. now he reported all these articles. So yeah. So the, it sounds like maybe more efficacy, better side effect profile, but we really didn't talk about any of the potential uh, downfalls and toxicologic doses. All right. So it's available both as immediate release and now recently as an extended release, but not mixed with. NSAIDs or any or, or Tylenol as sometimes the other medications ultimately do get mixed together that would probably increase its risk of overdose so um, just a few words is uh, before we introduce the last article um, I got this article from uh, uh, Rick Dart at um, uh, Rocky Mountain and he kind of is one of the people involved in the radars program and if you don't know what the radars program is Nate who's here is our, our site person who takes care of that and goes through each week and sort of goes through a list of drugs that show up our exposures and puts them into a giant database, which almost all the poison centers in the United States participate in, but not quite all. So they were able to glean, not just from that database, but a couple others, what, you know, the abuse side effect of this drug, like most pain medications, sooner or later, the word gets out that that's going to be something that may be diverted for abuse. and. Um, this article from about a year ago sort of addresses some of those issues. So, yeah. All right, so I am reading the assessment of the abuse of Tepenadol immediate release the first 24 months. It has several authors and it was published in the Journal of Opioid Management back in 2012. Um, they talked about how non-medical use of prescription medications is a problem in the 18 to 25 year olds and for the most part is due to availability. <clears throat> And there's actually um, lots of institutions out there attempting to reduce its use. Um, as we have recently learned, Depentadol is mu opioid receptor with norepi reuptake inhibition. And it's Schedule 3, uh, Schedule 2, I'm sorry. Um, and it's meant to treat moderate to severe acute pain in adults. It's believed to have lower affinity to the mu opioid receptor when compared to the other uh, class 2 which are oxycodone and morphine. And it's believed that its low affinity is leads to a reduction in potential for abuse. Um, there is a pure enantiomer with no active metabolites, therefore another sort of um, extra in regards to reducing abuse potential. And the entire purpose of the study was, well, we believe that it actually is not, does not have the potential for abuse, but does it really? 
So they went through and they uh, queried a whole bunch of databases. Um, the research abuse, diversion, and addiction-related surveillance through the radar system, uh, quarterly data, um, and all abuse or diversion cases that involved dependital, IR, oxycodone, hydrocodone, and tramadol. And it took place between July 1st, 2009, which is the third quarter of that year, and continued through June 30th, 2011, which was the second quarter of 2011, so two years' worth of data. Um, they also looked uh, data coming from the Poison Center program, uh, every intentional exposure that was received. Um, they also looked at the drug diversion program, which is 250 drug diversion investigators in 49 states, and basically newly opened prescription drug diversion cases within their jurisdiction. So these folks are um, sheriffs, police department, sort of administrative folks, not medical. Then they looked at the opioid treatment program, which is 76 opioid treatment programs in 34 states. And they basically document uh, prescription opioid abuse among the admissions to those opioid treatment programs. Then there's, there was a SKIP program. It's 132 abuse treatment programs in 45 states. And it's basically looked at data entering substance abuse, folks entering substance abuse treatment programs. So the uh, radar system has two denominators uh, dealing with abuse and diversion. The first one is the number of cases per 100,000. And then the second one was the number of cases per 1,000 unique recipients of the drug. So we're looking at population-based rates um, to sort of estimate what the actual public health burden is out there. And then they talked about the um, unique recipients of dispensed drugs, which they referred to as a URDD, um, that it basically meant to estimate the risk of abuse. Uh, they looked at plots, so lots of graphs are present in the article, and uh, they plotted the abuse and diversion rates of dependable IR when compared to all the other medications, oxycodone, hydrocodone, and tramadol. And they used linear regression models, and then they used a slope of regression, whether it was increasing or decreasing per quarter to make judgment calls. So based on the data, if you looked at the... Um, Poison Center program, uh, number of patients filling dependable IR prescriptions or the unique uh, were increased by more than 100,000, which sort of makes sense since it was just started. Um, when they looked at it over the time period of 24 months, there was not a significant uh, increase of rates in everything except for the Poison program data. Again, sort of makes sense. New drug, now all of a sudden it's showing up. Um, it turns out that in the Poison Center data, 132,445 intentional exposures occurred, and uh, they happened to be very low when you actually looked at it at the, per 100,000, worked out to be 0 0.003 to 0.02 cases. And when you actually looked at the other agents, uh, oxycodone was 1 to 1.18, so multiple orders of magnitude higher. And the same thing for hydrocodone and slower but still significantly higher rates for tramadol. <clears throat> and it turns out that uh, the unique dependable IR recipients increase, you actually had increases in the, um, <clears throat> sta stable increases in the amount of uh, data that was reported. 
And in that particular time period, you had intentional exposures uh, for tapenadol IR that were similar to um, those for oxycodone, but higher for hydrocodone and lower for tramadol. So it's sort of in between for this unique um, tapenadol recipients. When you actually looked at the drug diversion program, so now these are folks, um, this uh, investigators and in cases, um, there was not really a large uh, number of dependent all related diversion that was reported. They actually had a zero reports. Looking at opioid treatment programs, so people actually requested help in quitting from their opioids. Um, dependent all was much lower than both oxycodone and hydrocodone, but about the same rate as tramadol. And when you looked at the SKIP program, which was sort of looking at non-medical use of tefenadol, it was pretty. It was extremely low, anywhere between zero to zero point uh, zero point zero two. When you compared it to oxycodone, which was like 0.73 to one point two eight, so a couple orders of magnitude higher. Same thing as um, it was about two to three times higher than tramadol. So to, overall, the discussion sort of centers on the fact that it appears that. In the first two years after it's used, it um, does not appear to have significant abuse compared to the other opiate agents that are out there. However, you know, of concern to their current data is that it's a newly prescribed drug. It's out there on the market recently. It's more expensive than the other medications. So we might actually be experiencing a non-typical abuse potential currently. And it's going to be a little bit more time to sort of see as it spreads throughout the population, people start getting hooked on it, um, whether it's actually going to become a significant source of abuse. Um, they do sort of theorize a little bit on the fact that uh, potentially the mechanism of action, the fact that it's not a very good mu receptor agonist, might make it less of a experience for folks using it. And the fact that norepi is involved, it could actually cause uh, or, or reduce an addiction potential from the medication. But at this moment in time, those are all sort of theoretical. And we're just going to have to keep an eye out and see if it becomes a bigger issue. Yeah, I thought it was nice that they looked at a bunch of different databases and, you know, is it showing up in arrests? Is it showing up in drug rehab programs? Is it showing up in, you know, phone calls to the poison centers? And it's a new drug, hasn't been around. So it's only a couple of years into it. So far, it's got a very, very low profile. And obviously, the radars program and probably some of these other programs are going to have to keep an eye on it. It seems to be higher than tramadol. I mean, as far as lower than tramadol, tramadol is higher than it. And of course, the true you know, long-standing opiates, oxycodone, hydrocodone, are, are way up there. So I, uh, you know, we have to look at the big cost analysis. Is it worth prescribing these more expensive drugs and the overall cost to society versus the addiction potential, the abuse potential, the number of overdose deaths potential that are out there. And I think it'll take like a decade of research to see where it fits in, whether this too will be diverted or removed off there. But um, the short term, a lot of insurance companies may not pay for it because it's more expensive. Patients may not pay out of pocket for it because it's more expensive. So, but it seems like a reasonable option for sort of pain management, but uh, I don't particularly want to endorse it or not endorse it, but to just explore some non-traditional opiates in these three T's, 
today, there may be better alternatives to the patients we see all from times in the emergency room for lots and lots of painful conditions. So we're not to make their own choices of what to use or, or not use in the future. All right. Any other thoughts? If not, uh, we'll finish up and talk to everyone next time.